Hello, and welcome to a podcast in which we will discuss all things degrowth, from building a society that will ensure a good life for all its members to the alternatives to overconsumption and overproduction. Today, we're lucky to have an expert guest, assistant professor of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at Maastricht University and participant of the 8th International Degrowth Conference, Dr. Miriam Meissner. In today's conversation with Dr. Meissner, we will explore some of the overarching topics of her research on degrowth, from minimalism to implementing universal income. We hope that you enjoy this podcast and find yourself eager to attend the degrowth conference. But for now, let us introduce our guest. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> I'm happy to have a chat with you about degrowth and culture. Mm-hmm. Great. So I think uh, as a starting point, we would like you to introduce yourself a bit, maybe tell our listeners about what you're interested in, what your area of research is, that kind of thing. Okay, yes. So um, as already said, my name is Miriam Meissner. Um, I'm a researcher and teacher at Maastricht University. My background is in, well, in cultural studies, although I'm also, yeah, I've kind of made my way through sociology <laughs> throughout my, yeah, my not so long yet academic career and um, I'm interested in different things Um, usually they are all always at the intersection between sort of creativity political economy and the environment Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah in the last uh, few years I grew more and more interested in degrowth mostly for ecological reasons but of course there are also so social factors that make a degrowth transition maybe a viable and interesting option. And my research at the moment is in particular on minimalist lifestyles in contemporary popular culture and the extent to which those lifestyles do or do not um, help us in maybe achieving a broader societal transition towards degrowth. Maybe you could talk a bit more about um, how you got personally involved with degrowth and what is your aim in your research and just personal contribution to degrowth? Yes, yes. Um, so I should probably also mention um, I'm based in, uh, in Amsterdam and Maastricht and I'm part of the broader degrowth network here in the Netherlands that is called Ontrui. And um, the aim of this network is to foster a conversation on degrowth um, and also, uh, yeah, engage in some form of degrowth activism, so really promote a societal transition towards degrowth. Now, my personal interest in degrowth developed probably earlier, um, before joining that network. Um, So I have said that I've always been interested in ecology as part of my research and also economy. And um, at some point I was involved in a book project on garbage in cities and waste in cities. So it made me think a little bit more about, okay, what are the sources of waste and how are we dealing with that at the moment? And of course, if you talk to people, most of what they would say is you ask, okay, how are you trying to avoid waste? Is that, well, I recycle. Um, and uh, that has its, its advantages, but also its disadvantages because it never really talks about what is the source actually of all that waste that seems to ever increase. And um, I gradually came to the conclusion that unless we really also go to the source of what makes all that waste, and it will be really hard to deal with it through recycling because recycling also has its downsides. Most of the recycling also uses energy, for instance, so that goes new sort of environmental impact. Um, But it also um, 
often implies downcycling, for example. So that gradually made me think a bit more about, okay, maybe we need something else than just a technological solution to the problem. And then I thought, okay, um, what if you sort of try to avoid packaging, for instance? And then, of course, comes the usual argument, okay, but then some industry is going to suffer from it, and that's going to affect our jobs and so on. And the more I thought about that and the more the sort of climate and biodiversity issue also became part of the public debate, I realized that this goes for so many ecological problems that we have. That in a way, there's always someone who makes money from an environmentally detrimental activity. And as soon as you want to stop that activity, we will affect somehow the fact that this generates jobs and sort of um, feeds into what our societies nowadays still value very much, which is economic growth and which is seen as a sort of remedy to all of our societal ills, whether it be power poverty, but also the, the ecological crisis. And I started to question that uh, equation a little bit more. And it became more and more clear to me that actually economic growth is maybe the worst thing we can do for our environment, yeah, pursuing that goal more and more, because it appears that this sort of, yeah, increasing growth just has a very, very negative impact on our environment. And the, the technological sort of decoupling of that impact um, that we've tried and the managerial decoupling of that impact just doesn't seem to work. And there are more and more studies coming out that prove precisely that point, that it's just not, not feasible. We just, yeah, we need to invent some carbon-eating unicorns or something like that in order to really make that happen. Uh, so we need to restructure our society and make sure that we achieve well-being in another way than just pursuing economic growth. And that's what degrowth is all about. And you think then, that lifestyle is the biggest part of that. Uh, if people have the argument that jobs, for example, are affected, you think that mm -hmm. if you change people's lifestyles, that then uh, as well, those industries won't won't suffer anymore because people won't be consuming those products. No, actually, the short answer to that is no, <laughs> but I can explain a bit why. Um, so I think lifestyle is an important dimension of the whole thing. Um, that we call degrowth. Because at the moment, as it stands, I think our lifestyles are still very growth oriented. So people are actually educated, socialized with the idea that the more they have, the better they are off. And that translates into fancy cars and holidays in the sun a few times a year and changing um, your clothes every season for a new fashionable item and these kind of things. Um, so there needs to be some sort of reimagination of what it means actually to be well. And that is important, I think. And that's also where minimalist lifestyles come in. Uh, however, if we would just imagine let's say okay tomorrow we all wake up with an epiphany i don't know we've read marie kondo and we all became perfect minimalists or maybe we realize that we're really destroying the foundations of our livelihoods on this planet so let's say okay tomorrow we all wake up with this epiphany and we don't go shopping anymore and we don't ride our cars anymore and we don't fly unless absolutely necessary but what would happen is we would go into a recession that means people would lose their job, go into poverty, states would lose their incomes, could not invest those incomes, the tax revenues into, let's say, education or healthcare and all these things that we absolutely need any longer. Um, and degrowth is a way, a way of sort of preventing that this would happen. So degrowth is not like a recession, but it means changing the system so that precisely those negative impacts would not happen. And that could happen, for instance, by um, 
uh, through a range of policy reforms. One of that could be, for instance, that you institute a universal basic income so that those people who fall out of labor due to this transition have at least something to draw upon. Then you could also think about work sharing schemes where you know the work that there is maybe becomes shared between people which would also afford more leisure. Um, of course, there's also other things that need to be done, such as putting caps on certain um, resources so that, you know, they just cannot be used above a certain limit any longer and many other things. But I think very important are those social reforms that sort of make sure that, you know, a degrowth does not translate into a recession or, a, yeah, that um, it's sort of our change towards a better lifestyle doesn't necessarily mean that there will be winners and losers from this process. Mm -hmm. um, I think this also is something we are personally interested in, um, in the sense mm -hmm. that when people become acquainted with the idea, the notion of degrowth, it's one of the first things that they start thinking about, that they're going to lose something. If being, uh, mm -hmm. How do you think um, some cultural practices or um, uh, cultural politics that can make this movement maybe more attractive in a sense to people? Yeah, it's a challenging question in a way, because um, I think growth is so deeply rooted nowadays within our culture that we often do not even recognize it anymore. Um, so, for instance, um, just one example, if we talk about ourselves improving, um, let's say I become a better friend or a better mother or a better, I don't know, wife or whatever, um, then we often talk of personal growth. Why do we describe that as growth? Why don't we just describe it as improvement or yeah, some sort of yeah, form of improvement? Maybe we could find a better word for it. Um, so I think there already somehow the growth ideology starts to take shape. And it's very difficult to change something that has been so prominent at least for yeah, maybe 70 years, if not longer. And I think there probably will have to be um, different starting points in order to do so. Um, in my view, popular culture is one way of maybe starting. Um, so that's also how I got quite interested in minimalist lifestyles, because what is quite interesting about those yeah, authors who often also have are very powerful influences is that they start to make something that seemed to be a sacrifice for the environment before something that is actually now, uh, yeah, quite hip, um, such as owning less, maybe just having a small wardrobe that we creatively combine, um, but that also makes you very light for traveling and everything. Um, having houses that are maybe smaller, but then also maybe more cozy and easier to navigate and easier to pay for, which might mean that you don't have to work so much and then you have more leisure. Um, so they are actually starting to make this sort of sacrifice for the environment, something that is actually, um, yeah, maybe a virtue, maybe something nice, maybe something that we can look forward to. Now, of course, there is one limit again, which is that, of course, this is not affordable for everyone. So while some people might say, OK, I'm, I'm going to consume less and then I can work less and then I have more leisure and my life becomes better. Others will find, you know, even if I consume to the absolute minimum, I still have to work full time in order to make ends meet. And there again, you know, those structural reforms come in. That's where universal basic income, for instance, could help to make also the benefits of a minimal lifestyle available to everyone. And that's why I think that 
you can never just yeah approach it from just the individual or the lifestyle side or the sort of top-down policy side you always need both together um, but I do think that the more we practice this kind of lifestyle and the more we make something that seemed to be a sacrifice, um, something hip, the more it will also be easier to maybe advocate those broader institutional reforms. Yeah, uh, it relates to uh, actually what you're saying in your article against accumulation when you uh, discuss yeah, the ideas of Marie Kondo and how through owning less you're actually going to get more maybe on some personal level but at the same time, you also say that it doesn't tackle, you know, the bigger issues of, uh, yeah, um, capitalism, and uh, it doesn't, you know, attack the system as a whole. How do you think? Uh, and you're just now saying that, uh, yeah, both of these changes should be uh, happening at the same time. Um, how do you see? It? What is your view of uh, what we can do to achieve it? Yes, yes. So what you mentioned right now is um, is an article that I've published in the Journal of um, Cultural economy i think and um, this article rather had a bit of a critical tone towards minimalism and now I'm, i've dived deeper deeper into the subject and i think it's not just bad it's also not just good so that's the interesting thing also about minimalism um, so what i what is good about it i think i have already described that it makes those sort of alternative lifestyles maybe seem something that can generate well-being there rather than take it away from us those reduced consumption lifestyles, for example. What is maybe um, a more critical thing or something that I rather see with a certain criticism is that those minimalist lifestyles invite people to think about the issue only in individual terms and really encourage people to not broaden their mindset beyond what is individually sort of good or not good for them. Um, so there are, for instance, some quotes that I show from, from minimalist lifestyle books where the authors of those lifestyle books really say that, you know, minimalism is not about worrying about the broader sort of problems of the world as such. It's about focusing on your direct immediate needs. And that translates also into maybe what we see nowadays also within the mindfulness movement where people are sort of yeah, invited to just really focus on themselves, focus on their immediate experience. And I think there is a danger to that, which is that we just uh, refrain from thinking about the systematic aspects that make why we cannot be sustainable at the moment and why we might also not be well, which is this endless drive towards growth, which sort of makes us very busy, which uh, forces us to work full time, which sort of yeah makes our homes cluttered which makes that we might not have enough time to care for our loved ones which um yeah causes a range of psychological ails and it would be wrong to assume that this is just the individual's fault that it's just individuals who are not making the right choices in their life and are not living enough in a minimalist or mindful fashion similar argument has been made by i think ronald pulsa is, is his name in the book mac mindfulness um, and the idea is, again, sort of this, this mindfulness phenomenon might, to some extent, provide a remedy at the individual level, but it also distracts from the broader problem. Um, and um, a broader problem that we need to tackle collectively. In order to tackle it collectively, we need some sort of, yeah, awareness for, for its systemic nature. <laughs> So that's the intricacy here. <laughs> I don't think that I have completely answered your question. Um, uh, but I think, uh, yeah, 
probably my answer to how can we make that better is to sort of dock on to minimalism and mindfulness and say, hey, you already have some great ideas, but let's look a little bit more at the systemic factors that also um, cause the problems that you lament in the first place. And let's see whether we can find not just individual, but also collective solutions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for giving an answer. It is a difficult question, but yeah. <laughs> Do you want to move to culture then? Yeah, yeah, I think that would be nice. Do you think that culture can actually play that that substantial part? If you just said before, for example, how many different dimensions you have to change or how many different uh, elements are, are at play? Do you think that culture is, is, is the biggest driver then? Um, I'm not sure if I would make a hierarchy and say, okay, this is the biggest driver. Um, I think culture is a lot. I mean, in a way, there's, of course, a narrow definition of culture, which is just, you know, art mainly, which includes also literature and uh, performance art and these kind of things. And then there is a wider definition of culture, which I think is the definition of culture that I also rather use in this article, which is shared signifying systems, shared values. And I think in that sense, almost everything is culture, even our legislatures and to some extent culture, because it's, it's, you know, it's written in a language and all of that. So in that sense, I would say culture is a big driver of change. I'm not sure if it's the biggest one. What I've tried to do in that article is to sort of envision, okay, what are the different dimensions of culture where we could sort of, that we could look at and mobilize as strategies for a degrowth transition. And if you like, I can go a bit into what those different dimensions might be. Uh, yeah, they are great, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Um, so, uh, so far, degrowth scholarship has focused in particular on um, what is often referred to as prefiguration. So showing in the present what an alternative society um, could look like or practicing that in the present. And um, the message behind that is often, you know, see this other world that that some idealistic degrowth scholars think is possible or degrowth activists think is possible, that is already in its infancy because people are living with less, people are living in maybe more communal settings, people are setting up cooperatives, people are practicing other life values than more is more. And that helps us to argue that this other world is possible and it also inspires others to follow suit. It can also be an activist strategy, for instance. So there are a lot of activist movement that also try to apply prefigurative practices. So for instance, uh, activist movement that practice a certain form of democracy already within their movement, because they want to see that democracy also happening on the broader societal scale and they practice what they preach. Um, so that is prefiguration and that is one important step. And I think that needs to be upscaled. Um, but I want to say that it's also maybe not the only step. So I think there's one other, or two other steps, one which would be uh, popularization. And that for me would be really what I've described before as docking on um, to existing movements that might have an overlap which what, with what we want to get to as degrowth activists, campaigners, scholars. And um, really, yeah, using those overlaps in order to make this degrowth ideal also more popular. So going to those minimalist influencers, for example, and telling them about degrowth and maybe see whether we have, you know, similar goals and also accepting that there might be some heterogeneity in the degrowth movement um, and accepting also that maybe some of the actors we might want to mobilize for this broader transition might not yet share all of our ideas. And, and ideas and might sometimes even 
um, pursue um, very different or opposed ideas. Um, and I'm drawing there on the thought of Stuart Hall, a sort of post-Marxian, post-Gramscian scholar that has argued something similar um, way back when, when the challenge for the left was to sort of combat Thatcherism in the 1970s, 1980s. And then there is a third dimension, which is more about pressure making. And here I'm taking some inspiration from existing activist movements that really use art as a means for their activist tactics. Um, and there are several examples, um, maybe for the degrowth um, context, interesting, for instance, is Extinction Rebellion um, that has used a lot of artistic techniques also in order to mobilize other people for their movement, but also in order to really facilitate their, yeah, sometimes quite uh, disruptive actions of civil disobedience. So combining, for instance, an occupation with a fashion show in order to really block let's say, um, so uh, what they've organized, for instance, was this sort of fashion show on Black Friday. And the idea was, of course, to boycott the event of Black Friday, a key event of consumption, but at the same time, um, sort of um, use this fashion show with all its sort of creative costumes that are made of recycled materials and everything to maybe um, already hint at some new idea of what fashion might look like in the future. And um, yeah use that as a sort of attention grabber. And I thought that was also quite interesting. And I think that that's another yeah, dimension of where art and culture could be used in order to pursue a degrowth transition. So degrowth is kind of a movement that is very, yeah, it has many perspectives. It has more of a scientific perspective, I guess, in that uh, many uh, social scientists and natural scientists are interested in it, but um, also there are some similarities with activism. Uh, how would you say, yeah, they are similar. Yes, um, absolutely. So um, I think the thing to say about degrowth, and that is maybe a bit of a pity, is that it has not yet translated into becoming some form of real activist movement. So I see it at the moment still as something that is more discussed among scholars and among um, the interest of the public. But there's not something like, I mean, I've mentioned, for instance, Extinction Rebellion in the US, there's the Sunrise Movement, there are many other movements that share maybe overlaps with degrowth, but don't necessarily have degrowth as their prime goal. Um, and um, yeah, so I don't know if there will ever be this sort of movement for degrowth or whether degrowth will maybe be just an idea that will inspire existing movements and maybe also inspire those movements to make degrowth as part of their goal. Um, if I look, for instance, at Extinction Rebellion, they have as their second demand, I believe, um, that um, um, greenhouse gas emissions should be reduced to net zero by 2025. Well, I think this, this scenario is just not possible without uh, absolute reduction in consumption and production. It's not possible to realize that just to, through technological efficiency and management. And I think in a, implicitly there, there you have a bit of degrowth. Then there's also a, the demand about the citizens assembly, which you might argue is goes maybe in line with, with some of the democratic ideas that are also pursued by some degrowthers. Of course, degrowthers also have sometimes different ideas, but there are definitely overlaps there. And I would hope that um, more and more environmental movements um, consider degrowth really as part of, of their goal. Also, um, I think for a long time, for more than 30 years, um, there has been a tendency to rather focus on green growth measures in, in order to 
combat global heating and biodiversity loss. And it's not brought about the results that we need. Um, so I think uh, I would really wish for most environmental movements to really switch their um, consideration there of what, what really works. Yeah. In terms of its feasibility or in terms of uh, how this could actually be achieved, you, you say uh, relatively little or in general, the, the literature on the topic says relatively little. So how would you respond then to a criticism like that? Mm -hmm. So I would say that prefiguration is actually the opposite. It does show that it, that it is already possible, if even in a small scale. So what prefiguration does is, for instance, look at this community. They are practicing an alternate, alternative lifestyle and they are actually quite well. So if you tell us then that degrowth is some sort of um, um, reverse in progress or something that will make us sacrifice a lot, you might not be right because you see those people, they are already living simple and, and they've um, cultivated alternative means for being well. And um, it is therefore possible. It's not a utopia. It's not a no place in that sense. Um, so that's one way of, of arguing that. I would also say that the literature actually has a lot of um, concrete suggestions of how a degrowth world can be implemented. Um, so if you look, for instance, at the work of Jorgos Kallis in, um, in the journal um, on ecological economics, um, one among many authors, but there's articles that really lay out already a range of key policies that can be implemented for um, pursuing a degrowth scenario. The universal basic income is one of them, uh, work sharing schemes, um, caps on certain resources, bans on advertising, um, cooperative, the, the sort of um, uh, fostering of cooperative um, property and cooperative firms, um, the strengthening of the commons. So I think there's a lot of propositions. I think the issue right now is really to, to how to make those ideas more mainstream, you know, how to push them into the mainstream, how to familiarize people with them, um, maybe take away also their, their bias towards them. Um, and also really uh, among policymakers um, propagate these kind of ideas. And I know, I think, or I, I uh, believe that policymakers are already at least, um, let's say, considering some of those ideas. So I know, for instance, that um, in Germany, uh, there are some parties who regularly invite um, proponents of the universal basic income or advocates of the universal basic income, but they don't yet publicly pursue that goal, partly in fear of being punished by the electorate because the electorate is just not yet familiar with that idea. And what I'm waiting for is actually for political parties to really, you know, um, take a leap of faith and take some of those measures on board and really advocate them and make them sexy for a broader public because that is also what is needed on behalf of political parties who are not, in my view, just there in order to fulfill um, some sort of demand from the public, but also propagate something that in their sense um, makes sense in order to deal with a certain problem and then advertise for this solution. Yeah, but there's there's also kind of a culture, I think in a lot of countries in the West that you enjoy, for example, labor, you enjoy hard work, or uh, that's something that I, I know a lot of people and people I've told they're very apprehensive to moving away from that because they enjoy, for example, what they do. Uh, how do you then connect that cultural difference with with uh, what you try to achieve? 
Yes, so we're coming now to the meaning of labor in contemporary culture, and that is also very interesting, um, has an interesting history, I would say. It is very interesting that contemporary left-wing parties even um, are very sort of attached to this idea of hard work, ideal of hard work, and let's, let's make sure that everyone has a right to work. Um, but that is actually quite strange, um, because if we think about that, I mean, um, there's a range of people who are actually quite well without working that much. If you think, for instance, um, uh, of yeah, people who just inherited a lot and uh, don't have to work, I wouldn't say that they are unwell just because they work less, you know. Um, so really looking for a right to work would seem to me like a strange strange thing. Um, also, there have been unionist movements uh, in the early 20th century that actually were, were going for, for um, yeah, their, their prime goal was to work less and to not be so exploited in that sense. Um, so the fact that this sort of right to work has become so central to our society is quite strange to me. I think I would rather vote for a right for self-determined activity, which might include wage labor, um, might also include other activities such as volunteering, caring for loved ones, and we need to find a way in our society to also valorize those activities that people um, without remuneration bring to society, those values that they bring to society. So for instance, if I care for my children at home and I um, cook them food and I clean our home, then I'm, I'm creating values, but those values do not go into economic growth or into GDP, at least how we account it. If I order us a pizza, I hire someone to take care of my children and hire someone to clean my house, then all of a sudden it does go into GDP. So I think this sort of fixation on wage labor is something that I would rather want to overcome. That doesn't mean that there won't be wage labor in the future. I think there will have to be some work um, and we will still keep on having to work probably also um, for wages, but um, really focusing our culture on that and focusing on our political demand on the demand for labor would, I think, be not the way to achieve well-being. I hope that, ma that makes sense. <laughs> Perfect sense, but it also makes me wonder, so since uh, yeah, you talked about, for example, volunteering and uh, some unpaid labor, such as taking care of uh, mm -hmm. children, which, well, <laughs> is something mm -hmm. that many, many people do every day. But then again, people are so used to, you know, their um, their output being sort of measured and uh, in some quantitative terms. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't know, maybe I personally don't believe in altruism, uh, but do you think there are some other ways uh, apart from GDP of, uh, yeah, the outcome of people's work, which could be taken care or yeah, doing some labor being measured in some other way? So what else can you, you know, get for your labor if not, uh, for example, money? Mm -hmm. Yes, I think there the universal basic income would be a fantastic means. Um, so if you would say, okay, everyone gets an income, no matter, I mean, the fact that it's universal means that it's really for everyone. Even if I'm rich, even if I'm a millionaire, I still get, uh, let's say, a thousand or a thousand five hundred euros per month from the state without any demands. Let's say everyone gets that. Um, then I would have make sure that basic needs for food, for housing, for these kind of things are always um, covered. Now, what would people do with that? 
And here, of course, um, I think there are different um, ideas of what, what nature, the nature of humans is. Um, some people say, okay, then everyone would be lazy on their beds, eating crisps and watching Netflix. Um, interestingly, whenever I asked people, um, you know, what would you do if you would have such a universal basic income? Most people tell me that this is not what they would do. So people always think of this as something that others would do. Um, and I think part of the story there is also that we've been educated for a long time um, that people are competitive, they are maximizers of um, their individual sort of benefits, their hominess, economicy, you know. Um, so they are all into their own self-interest. Um, but I think there's actually a lot of research that shows that people are actually quite well when they are connecting to others, when they are helping others. Um, it's, it's not the sort of... Um, uh, vision of humanity that the sort of neoliberal model promotes at the moment, but it is something that is actually quite researched that humans are actually very collaborative beings and that they obtain well-being from caring for each other and also feeling useful within society. So I don't think that people would not engage in those kind of activities. There might be some, but that in the overall scheme of things would not make the big difference. And as I said, of course, there would still have to be some wage labor. Um, but then there's also the interesting thing. So for instance, I think no one really wants to clean public toilets, right? Um, at the moment, the people who clean public toilets are those who for some reason or the other cannot get another um, job. Um, that also has to do often with, you know, exclusionary measures, issues of, you know, citizenship and whatnot. Um, and uh, that means that they can be actually quite exploited so that they have to do that for a minimum wage. Now, imagine that everyone already had that 1,500 in their pocket. I think no one would accept this job unless it would be properly remunerated. You know, so I might still end up cleaning toilets, but then at least for a proper wage that also valorizes this job that I'm doing that no one else wants to do. And at the moment, that's not happening because there's exploitation, because people really have to accept jobs in order to make ends meet. A very good example of what you're talking about. Um, how do you think cultural practice and culture and art in the broadest sense, as you use it in your research, could help uh, maybe embody the growth in a sense? Mm -hmm. Um, so I think the question of um, embodiment is something that I'm just starting to look at in my research. Um, so I find, find that still quite difficult. Um, but um, also because, you know, the, the issue is, of course, that uh, degrowth is such a big change in society um, that we can only fully embody once this change has kind of taken place but we can just embody now elements of what it might look like in the future so um and yeah i think arts can probably help in envisioning maybe something a bit more you know future oriented i think one of the power of the arts is to sort of imagine societies for instance in literature that are not yet there but might be there um, I can't really tell you of any um, novel I've read that really, uh, yeah, um, imagines this utopia of a degrowth future completely. Maybe I'm unaware of, of the fact that there is one that exists. Um, but th I think it would be possible to do that through, through art and filmmaking, for instance. 
And I think that's also a role that literature and film in particular has played in the past to sort of envision future, yeah, utopias and make them yes, less utopian and more sort of um, real in that sense and possible. Um, uh, when it comes to culture in general, I think there are some sort of elements, you know, where we can already seeing some embodiment. And I'm, of course, coming back to my minimalist lifestyle styles, but I do see it as embodied there, at least in part. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that is something to, to then work upon, make that more. Mm -hmm. Nice. Well, some goals for the future, I guess. <laughs> Uh, I guess we have just a couple more closing questions. Um, more, yeah, uh, thinking of the degrowth conference that you're going to be uh, part of. Uh, maybe you could talk about, uh, yeah, what actually you're going to present at that conference and why we should be looking forward to it. <laughs> okay. Yes. Um, so I'm. Um, I've organized um, one. Let's say. Um, yeah, sub-conversation of this conference or a stream of this conference and this stream deals with cultural politics. And um, the idea of this stream is that we will discuss really more this question of how can we strategically use culture in its different forms, be it art, be it popular culture, in order to well bring about and maybe also accelerate a degrowth transition because at least for ecological reasons, it's quite urgent to make that happen. Um, so that's what we are going to talk about. And then there will be different papers. There will be different artistic contributions that deal with that question. And there will also be a plenary discussion. And on this plenary, um, there will be two um, art activists. So people who have really used art within their own activism um, discussing. There will be one philosopher who has coined the idea of um, uh, alternative hedonism. Um, discussing and there will be an art curator of the Netherlands who is also uh, thinking about degrowth as something to be realized in the art world both on an institutional level but maybe also on the level of content and um, yeah I look forward to that discussion of course how that will go. So that was Dr. Miriam Meister, an extremely interesting guest with some insightful ideas on culture and its role in the degrowth movement. We hope you enjoyed it. If you want any more information about degrowth and the degrowth conference we talked about, you can go to degrowth.info. D-E-G-R-O-W-T-H.info. And don't forget the 8th International Degrowth Conference will be held from the 24th until the 28th of August. We'll focus on caring communities for radical change. Again, thank you for listening to our podcast and hope to see you there. Bye-bye.